0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
1: Hi, everyone.
2: Thank you so much for tuning in to this event, Justice for Indigenous Women and Girls, which is the second event in the Voices from Indigenous North America Speaker Series, co-hosted by Voice of Witness and Haymarket Books. I am Sarah Sinclair. I'm an oral historian, an educator of Cree, Ojibwe, and German Jewish descent. And I'm also the editor of How We Go Home, Voices from Indigenous North America. Um, And this event series is based around the book's launch. I wanna take a moment to acknowledge that if we were gathering physically in one place today, we would recognize and thank those whose land we had gathered upon. Since we are all distanced, Each of our speakers will share the land that we are calling from today. My home in Brooklyn is located on the traditional ancestral lands of the Lenape. It resides on land that was cared for and called home by the Lenape people and other native peoples from time immemorial. This land holds great historical, spiritual and personal significance for its original stewards, the native nations and peoples of this region. We recognize and continually support and advocate for the sovereignty of the Native Nations in this territory and beyond. By offering this land acknowledgement, we affirm tribal sovereignty and will work to hold ourselves accountable to American Indian and First Nations peoples. Over to you, Vicky.
1: Thanks so much, Sarah. Well, it's uh, thanks so for having me, and I just want to say how much of an honor and humbling experience it is to be uh, sharing a space with uh, some incredible, amazing leaders, teachers, and healers. And I do want to uh, acknowledge that I'm on the uh, traditional and unceded and unsurrendered uh, territory of the Abenaki people.
2: And Paula,
3: thank you, Sarah and Voice of Witness for centering indigenous truths in how we go home, and Gladys for being brave enough to share your truths to end violence against Native women. I'm Paula Julian, Senior Policy Specialist with the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, or NIWRC. I am Filipina, and for the last 14 years, I work from home on the La Jolla Indian Reservation in San Diego County at the land of the people of the Payomkawichem, are people of the West.
2: Thank you. And Gladys.
4: Gladys Radek, Uh, I'm on the uh, original territory, the Tsimshian.
2: Thank you, Gladys. Um, I'd also love to uh, encourage all of our attendees to share where you are calling from today in the chat box, if you know. Um, and if you don't know, you can take a moment today to look it up at nativeland.ca. Um, So, as I said, this event series is based around the launch of How We Go Home, um, the latest book in the series from Voice of Witness, which is a human rights oral history nonprofit that works to amplify the voices of people impacted by injustice. Uh, Voice of Witness provided editorial guidance and funding for this project and the book was published by Haymarket Books, an independent publishing house based in Chicago. The book is available for purchase now on the Haymarket website. Um, This oral history book was released two weeks ago, and it is very accessible for readers of all backgrounds, including middle and high school students. And Voice of Witness has also developed a free set of lesson plans for the book, which educators can now download directly from the Voice of Witness website. Um, the stories in the collection touch on a number of issues, including Indigenous land rights, environmental justice, access to education and health care, the carceral system, and violence committed against Indigenous women and girls, which is what this event today is focused on. Um, to ground our conversation and the narratives around this issue, I'd like to share a few key numbers for context. In the U.S., more than four in five Indigenous women have experienced violence and more than one in two have experienced sexual violence. In Canada, Indigenous women are six times more likely to be murdered than non-Indigenous women and girls. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by three advocates in the field working on this issue, dedicated to justice for Indigenous women and communities. We're honored to have Gladys Radick here today, one of the narrators from How We Go Home, In the book, Gladys bravely shares her life story of growing up in Canada's foster care system, surviving violence herself, and becoming a tireless grassroots advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, following the disappearance of her own niece, Lynn Chipman, in 2005. Gladys co-founded Walk for Justice, an organization created to fight for the families of Indigenous women who went missing or were found murdered across Canada. With Walk for Justice, Gladys has crossed the country seven times and she has spoken to thousands of families whose lives have been been impacted by violence perpetrated against Native women and girls. We also have Paula Julian with us today. Paula is the senior policy specialist for the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. She works on policy analysis and development, technical assistance and training and partnerships to strengthen laws, policies, and responses addressing violence against American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian women. We are also excited to have Dr. Vicky Chartrand with us. Vicky is an Associate Professor in the Sociology Department at Bishop's University in Quebec, and an Adjunct Professor at the University of Ottawa in the Criminology Department. She is an advocate for and with women and children, Indigenous communities, and people in prison. Um, I would like to say as well that we are going to be saving time at the end of the conversation to answer any questions that any of you may have. So please do go ahead and share your questions in the chat box while we're talking and we'll get to those um, at the end of our conversation. Um, so I want to bring our other speakers into the space um, and Gladys, I'm going to start by um asking you if you would share a little bit about your own life experience and your journey to becoming an advocate. Um, first, I'd like to read a short excerpt from your narrative in How We Go Home. This is Gladys. I was driving to Kamloops one day. It was beautiful. Snow was out there on the highway. You got the river running through it. And I just had this feeling and the words started coming out of me about this walk. I had this need to see my friend, Bernie Williams. I phoned her right away and I said to her, you know, people have been talking about how they feel it's necessary for a national public inquiry. How would you feel about walking across the country to advocate for that? And she said, let's do it. Um, Gladys, uh, can you um, share with us some of your experiences that led you to become an activist around this, this issue?
4: Um, yeah, it actually began when uh, when my niece Tamara did go missing. Um, previous to her going missing, I was up in uh, her home community of Terrace, which is where I am now. Uh, but I lived here, and I was at that time, she was 18 years old, and she came to uh, support me because I moved back up to Terrace to address a historical sexual abuse case. Uh, And I decided that I was going to charge one of my perpetrators. And when I moved up here for that year, Tamara spent a lot of time with me. She came over. She knew the court hearings were happening, and and she came over just to support me, just to be with her auntie. And uh, she came over. She spent a lot of time with me and with her dog Niner, and um, you know, he was a Rottweiler. But they spent a lot of time with with me and my three cats at that time and my kids. And uh, so she was there for my moral support through all of this. And I told her that I was only going to be in Terrace for a year and then I had to move back down to Vancouver because I had a significant other that was living in Vancouver. And I promised him that I would be back within a year after I dealt with these charges. So that's where Tamara and I spent a lot of time together. And, uh, after I left, you know, I, I kept in touch with her and, and, uh, also, you know, with my, with my own family, you know, and in December of 2005, that's when my sister phoned me and told me that, that Tamara was going to be on the news. And I thought, what for? And they told me that she had disappeared. Wow. He may as well have lit a candle under my butt because I was very upset about that. And then I'd heard about a walk that was happening to Prince uh, to from Prince Rupert to Terrace by my cousin who was uh, wanting to walk because by that time we had realized that there were several missing girls from our particular reserve, which is Morristown. And uh, my cousin was going to do this walk. And then I heard about a symposium that they were having in Prince George. And so we ended up walking from there, from Prince Rupert, into the symposium in Prince George, March 2006 the most common message that I was hearing because family members knew that we were walking and they were coming to us and sharing their stories about their loved ones that had gone missing, which is, you know, so I ended up having to build a database because all these families are coming to me with pictures and this is my loved one. This is what happened. This is what happened. And then of course the symposium comes around and we have to listen to the, controversial numbers of the RCMP and you know I'm I'm sitting there and I'm listening to all these families and the most sought thing that they kept saying was we need an inquiry we need to find out what's going on with our women that's the first time that I also heard the uh, term highway of tears and I found out where that came from and realized that, yeah, this is the highway of tears because there was so many of us family members that had tears for decades, missing their loved ones. I started hearing stories from the fifties about young uh, girls that had gone missing. They left the reserve, they go to Vancouver, go to Prince George, get away to escape violence, to escape poverty and, the stories got to me. So finally in December 2007, and you know, I was really angry when I went to my brother's at Christmas time that year in Barrier, which is on the other about an hour uh, southeast of uh, Kamloops. That's where my brother lives. And that's when I came up with the idea. I used my cousin's walk. And I I remembered how she she did it, and we did it in ten kilometer increments, and so I just kind of took that, and I thought we can do that. We can walk across the country, and that's what we wanted to do because the families' question, we you know, was always we or the families was we need a national public inquiry. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, you know what? These families have been silenced for so many years. Somebody's got to do something. And when Bernie said to me, let's not talk about it, let's do it. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, let's do it.
2: Can you tell us about what the walks have been like?
4: Well, I tell you, it wasn't easy. Uh, We totally relied on donations and volunteer. Uh, The majority of the, the walkers were family members who had lost loved ones. Some were fresh, some of them were really old cases. But somewhere, all of us were affected by the loss of somebody that we loved, whether it be male or female. We were all affected by the same thing. And we all recognized the fact that um, our human rights were actually being violated. On our first walk, that's the one thing that we did was we took the United Declaration for Human Rights. All the walkers studied it, and we picked it apart, and we picked it apart. And during that walk, we would talk about it every night, and we, I would ask the walkers, so what did you notice today in that? And we ended up picking out of the first, out of the Universal Declaration, 17 violations
1: mm.
4: pertaining to our women. Mm -hmm. out of the 30 amendments Mm -hmm. then they came out with undrip and to this day i still don't believe in that because i believe that's just setting us another extra set of laws for canada Mm -hmm. so you've got the universal declaration universal meaning all and then you've got UNDRIP, which is uh, United Nations Declaration for Indigenous Human Rights, thus separating us from the rest of Canada,
2: mm.
4: which is, I don't agree with that. Mm. Universal means all, and those human rights mean for everybody, not because you're Indigenous and live on a reserve, so you got a separate set of laws, When you look at those Indigenous at UNDRIP, you will find that the last 13 amendments are redundant of the first 30. Hmm. So they spent millions of dollars to change the paper format. Hmm. That's what they did.
2: You've spoken a lot about the importance of inquiries into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls being families first. Um, can you speak more about that, about what you learned from the families that you were walking with and what you know yourself? Um, can you can you share some of that with us?
4: Yes. Um, the thing is, as these stories started compiling with me and with the other co-walkers and with all the, the people that were involved with this movement, it's our families' voices that needed to be heard and our families kept on coming out. Basically, I would say that Walk for Justice is responsible for uniting those families and bringing their voices out. So they weren't silenced anymore. We were sitting behind a wall of silence before we walked. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: And all these families were in their own little communities and they were suffering in silence because They thought nobody cared. Mm -hmm. But when we started walking, we started connecting the families together, okay, and you know, and it just kept on going. And now we've got a huge family representation right across the nation. And each one of those family members has their own voices. And now we've got grassroots organizations that are being the voices for those families. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Um, and what do those families know that other people, other government actors could not know?
4: The systemic racism that it falls upon.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, when when we did the first, uh, when we first did the first walk, Walk for Justice 2008, um, the first thing that Bernie told me is, okay, Gladys, you have to write a mission statement. (laughs) I'm sitting there, oh no, I'm lousy at that. But what I was writing in that mission statement was the voices of the families and what they were telling me. And more often than not, the word genocide came out. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: So I'm sitting there and I, I put genocide in the very first mission statement. Because that's what it was, and that's what it still remains today. Mm -hmm. When you think about the average First Nations woman will have five children in a lifetime. So say per se Canada is missing uh, 5,000 women. So that means we are missing out on 25,000 children for our future generations, pointing directly to genocide. And I'm not afraid to throw that word around because it's true. And if the truth hurts, well, so be it. Mm
2: -hmm. Thanks, Gladys. Um, I was hoping that you might also um, share with us how you met Vicky so that we can bring her into this conversation as well.
4: Yes. Uh, When I first started, uh, started uh, commotion and everything online was almost a brand new thing. And then I was invited up to uh, De uh, Quinelle's women's group was having a, a meeting and they invited me to come up there for a meeting. And that's when I met Vicky and we never looked back because our minds mingled together really well.
2: Yeah. Um, Vicki, can you tell us about your memories um, of meeting Gladys?
1: I'd love to hear your yeah. version of that story. So we had, yeah, thanks. So we had met, uh, we had met in Central Interior BC in Quesnel, and I was actually working at a women's shelter at the time, and predominantly with Indigenous women who were experiencing a whole host of colonial violence and racism. So when I'd met Gladys, I had a tremendous respect for the work she was doing for her and the work she was doing. Um, but it wasn't until a few years later when I was actually in Ottawa on Parliament Hill at a take back the night march. But who was there? Uh, Gladys. I mean, <laughs> she was like everywhere all at once. <laughs> like this woman was she's just a dynamo just going. <laughs> so we, we, we reconnected in Ottawa and this is and then we've been collaborating, working together in different capacities ever since.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me about some of that work? What are you and Gladys working on together?
1: So, um, well, one of the big things that we just recently finished working on was a resource collection of over 500 uh, grassroots initiatives, Indigenous grassroots initiative, in support of the missing and murdered Indigenous women. And um, so... this particular idea, why we started um, collect, collating this this information, is Glass had mentioned earlier that we were on a cross-country road trip where we traveled in camp, driving over ten thousand kilometers over the course of seventeen days. Now, Glass is an <laughs> avid traveler; I'm a little bit green to be <laughs> compared to her. So it was pretty intense for me, perhaps a little normal for her. But and we were talking with the families and community members, um, you know. So the cities we. We visited, we went to Manitoulin Island, Thunder Bay, Virginia, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Alberta, Kelowna, you know, even Quennells in Vancouver. So, and um, something that struck me on this trip that we were on is that Gladys actually uh, drives a car called a war pony. She calls it her war pony. You may have pictures, I don't know, but, um, and what she does is she actually pastes. Pictures of missing women on her on the on the car to raise awareness and to help try to find these women. And as we go from town to town, for the most part, people would just sort of look on in, in a real in a somewhat interested way. But as we get into the indigenous communities or reserves, um, and when we would stop, you know, the people would come around. They'd look at the car. They'd meet, go up to Gladys, introduce themselves, shake her hand for all the work she was doing. They would talk about some of their own experiences. Some of them might even known a woman on on the actual vehicle. They would also offer us food. They'd offer gas. They'd offer us lodging. And to me, that really exemplified, I mean, it really shows that constellation of support that's so desperately lacking in our current criminal justice system. And so the idea, I think this idea really, it really struck me then was that it was that we needed to look at this database or this resource collection doesn't just highlight the different things that Indigenous communities are doing. It highlights the tremendous resource and strength that already exists in Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. And it also highlights the different areas that the things that justice is and the things that justice needs well beyond what a criminal justice system can actually provide.
2: Um, I'd love to hear more about what you learned about that. What have you learned um, through this process process about what justice is and what it means?
1: So if you, we've, we've actually made the resource collection public. So you can go on the justice.ca website and have a look at unearthing justices and you'll, you'll see the resource collections available there. And it really is, does document over 500 initiatives, you know, and had some of the main ideas behind it, right? So we talked about this idea of constellations of support, uh, safety through caregiving, uh, healing through remembering, marches, memorials, vigils, uh, community accountability, not just through punishment and segregation or isolation, but, you know, community accountability through resource sharing and building communities through walks and storytelling. So it really is a broad range and it tells us that justice is and needs many things more than what, a, again, what a, a criminal justice can provide. And if you want, I can give you a few examples or one, exa- one or two examples of what that might look like. Please. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, um, so for one thing, we were talking about, you know, justice needs to cultivate people and carry people through particularly difficult and challenging times, as Gladys knows, through through her walks. But one of these I wanted to talk about was an initiative called uh, in Manitoba, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, called Drag the Red. And it was or organized by a woman named uh, Bernadette Smith. And here it's where volunteers came together uh, to literally search the Red River of Winnipeg after a young Indigenous woman's body was found in the river. And the initiative took root when the police had refused to search, stating it would be ineffective and dangerous. And of course, if you're... Fun- is just to simply solve cases and it would be ineffective but Bernadette, so as Bernadette Smith tells us, she says that um, you know there's a real disconnect between the support that is needed by the families for the murders and disappearances and with what is the is able or even willing to offer. So to drag the red, the family members, they got together um, they pooled their resources, they provided boats, financial support, you know there was training for mapping and navigating the river, they learned how how to identify bones and provide uh, research and uh, search and rescue training. Like it was a real combined effort. And the families they also developed a missing persons uh, toolkit to help families navigate the media, build an investigation, log communications, interface with police and various ways to carry out searches. So it's building up community and people through constellations of support. Mm-hmm. You know, and really, as Gladys has said before, it's community supporting community. And how is a criminal justice system able to respond in that way? Mm-hmm.
2: I've looked at the resource and it's amazing. Um, it's really incredible to see all the work that different individuals and communities are doing. Um, mm-hmm. Were there any, um, I mean, I, were there have there been any surprises along the way? Any like great aha moments for you in putting all this together?
1: Oh, it was... Um, I I don't know if there's a, any aha moments other than the fact that it was just I was astounded by the magnitude of work that was being carried out. So when you look at it, it's because you hear a lot about it but when you put it together collectively it's like wow it's this is a critical mass of organizing that we often don't hear about and we often you know in particularly the media and public d- discourse we hear indigenous communities talked about within a framework of damage and and I think that really challenges that stereotype or that myth that communities are organizing and working together on based on their own resources and in light of histories of colonial uh, or in current colonial traumas and violences. Mm-hmm. So I think it was really that the, the, the collection of it together.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really powerful. Yeah. yeah.
1: Thank
2: you. Um, Paula, I want to bring you into this space. Hi. Hi. Um, I was hoping that we can hear a little bit about your current work at the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Um, And to start, maybe you can speak a little bit about how the impact of colonization and genocide connects to this issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls.
3: Thank you, Sarah. And again, thank you to Gladys and to Vicky for all that you've shared. Um, and I I, I, I want to start and be very clear that, um, as Gladys pointed out, colonization and genocide um, are at the root of violence against Indigenous women. Um, so um, the, the rates that you cited at the beginning of today's session um, are no accident. Uh, Those rates are again rooted in the colonization and genocide of the U.S. and Canadian governments. Um, So we have uh, apologies here in the U.S. from 1993 and 2009 uh, from the United States to Native Hawaiians, American Indians and Alaskan Native peoples. And in those apologies, uh, the government recognized the years of official depredations, violence, maltreatment, neglect, um, and the resulting um, devastation to indigenous peoples and their nations, um, to their health and their well being. Um, the US government is the first trafficker, predator, yes. and abuser of Native women. Um, Ample government documents, such as the 1867 uh, Condition of Indian Tribes Doolittle Commission report, speak to this violence committed by non-Native men against Native women. And this same violence that we see documented by uh, tribal voices in 1867 can be the same exact voices. They're Gladys they're Gladys's voices and they're all the other families. It's the same words, uh, might just be, you know, old English, but it's the same exact concerns being expressed. You could take that testimony from the 1800s and just put 2020 on it. It's the exact same. Um, so. U.S. boarding schools, I can't remember if um, if Gladys referenced that, but U.S. boarding schools like Canadian boarding schools are one of many examples of how the government um, stripped culture, uh, took away indigenous protections um, and uh, really committed, uh, acts against physical, uh, sexual, spiritual assaults against native children, um, and forced native children to accept what it meant to be a native man, a native woman, according to, you know, non-indigenous cultural norms, um, that included, uh, it was okay to be your partner and it was okay. It still is okay to assault, uh, Women because they're women. So, I, I, you know, Professor Sarah Deere stated um, in a 2011 hearing before a Senate committee that if trafficking had been a U.S. law on the books in the 1800s, as it is today in the United States, that the U.S. could be charged as a trafficker. That's a powerful statement. And I know that Gladys and Vicky um, would agree that that is true in Canada as well. Uh, so that, that's just the, you know, really kind of bridging that connection between colonization and genocide. We think people think that it's past, it's not past. No. It's no current practice today.
2: Thank you, Paula. Um, can you speak about the importance of centering um, the response of tribal governments to violence against indigenous women?
3: Yes. So again, as Gladys and Vicky shared, um, it is families and local tribal governments that are always the first and often only responders to violence against Native women too often. Um, Because of a failed government response to provide for tribal resources, Uh, we don't have um, law enforcement, for example, in many tribal communities. Um, In addition, um, those responses are non, for the most part, non-indigenous. So again, uh, what What's most important from this point forward is really centering those indigenous protections um, that also look at reforming non-native responses to the violence. Um, so I think Vicki and Gladys both pointed out that there is a disconnect between the the current system responses and what the families and the survivors need. Um, and that disconnect can be bridged by really lifting up, centering and expanding and respecting those voices, those native voices, and really making sure that the needs of the survivors and the families are front and center, not, you know, pushed into a corner um, or silenced like Gladys was talking about. Um, and we've seen that in in Canada and the United States, we have seen Indigenous women and their communities begin to really uh, create a groundswell. This walk for justice in Canada, um, similar to the movements that we've seen here in the United States and tribal communities living on reserve and off tribal lands is overwhelming in terms of uh, people, families, just saying, "This is we're not gonna tolerate this anymore. Um, our women and our girls and our children um, are sacred to us. Um, And we're going to um, hold the government accountable uh, to ensure that we continue to 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 treat our women and children that way.
2: Thank you. Can you speak a little bit more about some of the accomplishments um, that grassroots activists and movements um, have made to end this violence? Sure. So, uh,
3: again, I'm going to start in Canada with our sisters there. Um, I think that inquiry that Canada uh, finally completed, that didn't happen out of the goodness of the government's heart. That happened because the family said, we need to know. What is happening to our girls, our women? Um, and in the United States, it is the same. So because families and uh, their advocates and tribal governments have said this you know, we have to stop this violence. Um, we want accountability with the government. Um, and because of those outcries, we have seen a steady change, in what we call the indigenization of U.S. laws, uh, particularly from 2005 to today. Um, you can see it, for example, in the Violence Against Women Act, um, where we created in 2005, there was a tribal title that was developed out of the tribal voices that said something needs to change. The laws have to protect our women. We are citizens of this country, just like everybody else. Um, And so we have seen the gradual strengthening of protections in the Violence Against Women Act as one uh, concrete example. Um, Another change that we can see in the movement is um, really the growth of Native women's leadership Um, Through Native coalitions across the country um, that are forming, uh, just like Gladys and her coalition, saying uh, our families' voices uh, need to be at these decision-making tables, making sure that whatever laws are passed um, are rooted in those experiences um, and on tribal teachings. So we have seen tremendous progress over since at least 2005, if not earlier.
2: And what is still needed? What are some of the needs and goals that grassroots organizers are fighting for?
3: So we still have so much to achieve. Um, and we do what we can for, you know, each generation uh, carries the water that they can. So what's outstanding still, are continued um, um, recognition of tribal authority. So One example is in 1978, the US Supreme Court ruled that Indian tribes did not have jurisdiction over non-Indian criminals. in 2013, so do the math, from 2013 to 1978, uh, Congress decided, because tribes said that was wrong, that Supreme Court decision was wrong, Congress decided to work with tribes to pass the law that said that tribes will, uh, receive, will that jurisdiction over non-Indian criminals will be returned to tribes, particularly when it comes to domestic violence offenders. So, It was only limited to DV offenses. And so one change would be to expand that to include offenses against children and sexual assault offenses. And that's something that advocates are working today with Congress on. And so if you can reach out uh, to your congressional members and let them know that that would be an important change in U.S. law, um, that would be uh, one example of what is needed. In addition, um, our LGBTQ two-spirit relatives um, still um, continue to experience violence and no protections. And so we need Need, uh, stronger laws. Um, we need increased awareness of what their needs are. Um, we need families to step forward to say, uh, we, you know, we are your first line of defense. Um, and traditionally, uh, our teachings protected you as two-spirit LGBTQ. Um, we need to reclaim those teachings um, from being colonized um, and really practice those ways of protecting our two-spirit LGBTQ relatives. There are many other needs that we have but those are just two examples.
2: Thank you. Um, Can you speak a little bit about the toolkit that you're currently developing for Two-Spirit individuals? Sure
3: Um, and thank you for that reminder. Um, So NIWRC uh, several months back decided that um, there's a lot that is needed but one very concrete need was to develop a toolkit to really help restore indigenous protections for native two-spirit LGBTQ uh, survivors. And that toolkit is really about having conversations with our families and our friends about, what does it mean to love, protect, um, and support our two-spirit LGBTQ relatives um, that is rooted in our tribal teachings. We don't have enough of those conversations. And so this toolkit provides uh, family members and friends with the questions that they need to do that homework with each other and with their two-spirit LGBTQ relatives um, and really begin to change that at the family, at the local family level, and then hopefully you know carry that across the nation. Thank you,
2: Paula. Um, I wanted to pose a question to all of you now, I was hoping that we can um, all be in conversation with each other. Um, And to start, I would love to hear all of your thoughts about what some of the main challenges are that Indigenous organizers advocating on this issue are currently facing.
4: (laughs) That's an easy one for for me, Uh, that would be racism.
2: Okay.
4: Yeah. Racism is one of the toughest, uh, toughest, toughest eggs to crack here, uh, because uh, it's going to continue to exist until we have no more ownership of our land,
1: mm-hmm.
4: because that's what it's all based on.
2: And can, yeah. you, can you speak a little bit about how that racism, um, what it looks like and in uh, Around this issue, how does it become an obstacle for families looking um, for justice?
4: Well, let's look at Nova Scotia right now, for example, where uh, these uh, these white people, particularly the two white men that started to incite that riot in Nova Scotia, where they're actually destroying the livelihoods of the First Nations people. Fishing has always been our, our uh, inherent right and uh, it's always been uh, our one of our main resources for food
1: mm-hmm.
4: and what they're fighting over right now is two percent of the the lobster fisheries and these two guys decided that while well, we don't want them fishing. If we can't fish, we, we don't want them fishing either, you know. But it's our inherent right to provide for our families' food. Mm-hmm. Same with the fishing industry out here in, uh, out in BC here. Our fishing industry is depleted because they've overfished it, clearly. Mm-hmm. We've known how to uh, manage our fishing and our resources, our food resources for time immemorial and you let, the, you let the colonizers get in there and take it over and now there's nothing.
2: I think one thing that you spoke about in our conversations um, was that indigenous women are less likely to, to go to government authorities to police for help um, because they expect that the racism that they face will make um, those efforts um, worthless. They don't expect to be helped. That's right, and then
4: if you go back and look into our history of our uh, our wonderful uh, Northwest Mounted Police, and you will see in their mission statement from 1863 that they were there to control the Indian problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And the Indian problem was that it was our land.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: They don't want to have anything to do with us. They want our land. Mm-hmm. And what better way to... Destroy our land is by destroying our people, which is what they're doing. Yes, through germ warfare, through tuberculosis, through smallpox, through residential school, through missing and murder, there's not one angle in our life that is not affected by the colonization of this country.
2: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Gladys. Um, Vicky or Paula, is there anything that you um, would like to add speaking to the challenges? Um, organizers are currently facing?
3: Yeah, I, I think I would just add to what Gladys said that, and this is why how we go home is so critical, that growing up in this country, um, I didn't hear one lick of any real history, true history mm-hmm. um, about indigenous peoples.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: and if I was taught anything, it was mistruths, mm-hmm. if they were lies. Um, And so when you have people growing up not knowing that history and knowing um, indigenous nations were the first peoples on these lands. So we came in and we were Goldilocks. We stole their homes and their food and and everything else. Um, when you understand that it really changes things because then you have people, for example, in government positions that are informed and not making bad laws and policies, harmful laws and policies, um, against indigenous peoples. So I think that's a huge challenge is really raising understanding and awareness in general society about indigenous nations.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Paul and Gladys. And just to add to that, in, in terms of, you know, you're really highlighting this institutionalized violence and racism that come that's coming from the state and the very institutions that are supposed to protect us, but that have been actually designed historically and contemporary to not intervene uh, where it's needed. And so I think the biggest challenge is to moving away from these institutions, like the criminal justice system, for example, and towards investments and real investments in communities. Mm-hmm. There's been, in Canada, there's been a real big push for a guaranteed livable income so that we can, you know, these are the front end strategies that allow people to pr- actually to actually protect themselves, right? Thanks, Vicky. Um,
2: I was hoping that, um, I, I posed this question to Vicky a little bit, but I was also hoping to pose it to you, Paula, what um, are new models of justice and what are the different ways that justice for Indigenous women and girls um, could look like? Thank you,
3: Sarah. Um, I think what we've seen in Indigenous communities in the United States, um, including Hawaii, um, is what justice means has to be defined by the local um, Indigenous people um, tied to the specific lands and tied to their specific teachings. So there's not a cookie cutter approach you know, what's going to work for um, the Navajo uh, Diné people is going to work for the Yupik uh, people in Alaska. It has to be tied to those specific people's teachings and, as Gladys said, to, to where they come from. Um, so but again, going back to justice has to be from that Indigenous person's perspective, that nation's perspective, um, and we see it across from Hawaii to the plains to Alaska to the Southwest. We see tribal communities and indigenous people saying, "This is how we define justice, um, according to you know who we are," um, and that that's what's so exciting is that um, there is. Um, these these other perspectives on what justice is that's not just, as Vicky pointed out, it's not just what, you know, as non-natives like myself understand is, oh, we have the police. No. Um, in indigenous communities, uh, law and order were maintained by our uncles and aunties who passed these teachings on um, and ensured that behavior was appropriate and not abusive or violent. So there's examples like that that we can look to that tribal communities and Native Hawaiians are implementing everywhere. Mm
2: -hmm. Thanks, Paula. Um, And Gladys, what would justice mean for you? What does justice mean to you? (laughs)
4: That's a really, that's a real tough one because there's so many different angles of it. Like when I when I think about the families and how many of our uh, of our families whose girls have gone missing and have been found murdered and the vast majority of them remain unsolved murdered. There's no accountability for what happened to their loved ones, and uh, proper justice would mean having the perpetrators going through like the court system and being thrown in jail. Um, There's a big difference in the way our people are treated in the court system and the way the rest of society's people are in the court system. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: So, but for Indigenous people, like I think about, just for example, there was a case that I read about actually just this morning online about a uh, fellow on, Vancouver Island um who got 5 years for in jail he's never been charged before but he got charged uh, and he got thrown in jail for 5 years for sexually abusing his stepdaughter so and i thought wow really he got 5 years and then i i reflected back to my own case uh, as an indigenous woman and my perpetrator got 2 years house arrest two years probation, and 150 community hours. And the only difference between that victim and mine, first of all, I was younger when it happened.
1: Mm -hmm.
4: And so, you know, like, where's the justice in that? Mm -hmm. If you can look at a person's color of skin and say, well, you don't deserve justice, so we're just going to throw this at you. But, hey, you abuse one of our colored people, well... I'm gonna throw the book at you. Mm-hmm. That's not justice. Equal equal treatment in the courts in the courts would be nice for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people.
2: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Gladys. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about some actions. Um, about how people tuning in today, including non-Indigenous viewers, can best support um, grassroots advocates working to end gender-based violence. Um, So I was hoping that each of you might share a few ideas um, that you have for um, concrete action steps that people uh, may take.
1: Mm. So I, I could um, talk about the work that so with Gladys, what we collaborate on in the justice Ex- on the justice exchange website. So, again, that's justice exchange And then under the unearthing justice, we put together um, a petition that you could sign if you're um, if you're so inclined. But it really is about. Uh, investing in communities and indigenous communities so um and and for the and the right to self-determination such as honoring land and treaty agreements uh the other point would be to provide safe accessible housing for everything for everyone and those are the things that make that keep women safe right when they and something as simple as free and accessible public transit for the women on you know the infamous highway of tears who don't have transit and they have to hitchhike and that's those are the small things that expose them and then uh, of course investing in care. Wellness and healing. These are these are really important parts of uh, you know helping and promoting and advancing any community for that matter, let alone just indigenous communities. So there's the petition. There's also a GoFundMe page on the website if you're interested in helping the families directly because uh, they do this off their own time and their own resources, and often it's it's emotionally, economically, and spiritually draining for them. And so if you wanted to donate. Money you can, uh, we, we provide uh, $200 stipends directly to the families on an honorary basis. And then finally, if you want to just share the resource collection, you know, just tweet Twitter it or you know, send it off on Facebook. It's just to, to get that knowledge and information out there. That would be great. Thanks, Vicki.
3: And I would, um, I would add to that um, so for more information. Um, And or to donate to NIWRC, you can go to our website, um, NIWRC.org. We have a wonderful magazine that we put out three times a year. It's called Restoration, um, Restoration of Sovereignty and Native Women's Safety. Um, And it really is uh, continuing to tell uh, the the organizing story um, at the tribal grassroots level um, on this issue. Um, So subscribe to the magazine. Um, and check out our website um, and then you know i think besides also um, getting how we get get how we got home um, i think you know just really taking the time to educate yourself um, about who are the indigenous people's lands that you live on now mm-hmm. um, and offering to support um, the tribes that may still be there um, is is you know you can't underestimate the value of that local support um, because indigenous peoples, you know, worldwide um, continue to experience the colonization and genocide. Um, and as long as they remain invisible to the general population, um, that colonization and genocide will continue. So encouraging you all to really learn um, who lives in your region in your part of the country um, and supporting them um, i think they would really appreciate any support that you could give um so thank you and gladys
4: one of my favorite slogans is uh got land thank an indian <laughs> but on that note i would like to say that uh I think one of my biggest pushes for the uh, calls to uh, justice is the fact that our people have been subjected to over 520 years of uh, numerous abuses, including the genocide. And as a result of that, a lot of our people, and it's not just our people, are uh, falling into addictions So my biggest push right now here in Canada, particularly in BC, uh, I would like to see health healing, proper health healing and wellness centers, treatment centers, because uh, our abuses are never going to go away, but there's, there's people that are masking those abuses through addictions. Mm. And, uh, Due to being replaced, uh, moved, you know, some are forced out of their communities due to poverty, uh, alcoholism, which is one of the worst tools of destruction they could have given our people. And uh, I would like to see proper health, healing and wellness centers in virtually every community that's near a reserve. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know. That's a lot, uh, especially doing the research that I've been doing in regards to B- just BC alone. We only have 15 treatment centers. Mm-hmm. We have 13 communities on the Highway of Tears. Mm-hmm. And, and the need, like our, our communities, especially up in the north here in, uh, on the Highway of Tears, very isolated mm-hmm. still. You know, it's getting a little crowded, but they're still quite isolated. And we have extreme problems in virtually every community with addictions and, and alcoholism mm-hmm. and uh, people referring to them as those people. That's one of my biggest pet peeves is that we are not those people. We are the first people. Mm-hmm. And that should be recognized. Yes, get familiar Get familiar with your territory. I remember even going to school up here in northern BC. They didn't tell me that I was on Simshian territory. It wasn't even brought up. But in our social studies class, we were taught about the Iroquois. Mm. Mm-hmm. They're from Ontario. Mm. You know what I mean? So we're, our proper history has never been properly recorded Thanks, and that's why people don't know our history mm-hmm. but get familiar with the, with us mm-hmm. you know we've got really good values we've got really good morals we're good
2: people and take it at face value um, which segs nicely to um one of my recommendations which is Reading the narratives in How We Go Home, um, which really does center and amplify the voices of Indigenous women like Gladys. Um, and you know, one of the things that was really important to me when I was working on the book was that it wouldn't just be a store a collection of stories that were about injustice, but that it would also be a collection of stories about resistance and also about hope. Um, and so I would love to just hear each of your thoughts. I know this is um, a little off script, but about what each of you, what gives each of you hope in the work that you're doing? For me,
4: it's webinars like this. For me, it's about the families and the more families voices that we hear the more we find out that we can work together, whether we're from different tribes or not, it's the unity of the families that is going to give us hope and keeping our voices out there and not letting it slide anymore. Right now is the time for change. And right now is when we need to gather together in unity. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Thanks, guys.
2: Vicky or Paula any thoughts on on hope, what makes you hopeful what's given you hope in the work you're doing?
1: Well for me really it's simply you know just walking and listening and collaborating beside folks like you guys, Sarah, Paula, Gladys, you know those uh, that, that's inspiring gives me hope and it's a labor of love really.
3: And and, and I, I, I echo what Gladys and Vicki said. Um, I think what gives me hope um, immediately when I think of hope, you know, I think of our children Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Um, and I think of their voices and their smiles and their big hearts um, and the reality that um, for too long, our children are for have been our first responders Mm -hmm. and that has to change and it changes with all of us coming together. Um, to make sure that that the children don't have to be the first responders anymore. Um, I also have um, what also gives me hope is meeting um, elderly women in, um in native villages in Alaska, like I've met in the lower 48 and them coming up to me saying, you know, um, I had to leave school uh, because my abuser wouldn't let me finish, and I left school when I was in fifth grade, uh, and so I can't read and write. But I want to help, and I want to be part of this movement uh, to make change. And when you meet elderly women uh, that say, you know, they they still want to see change for themselves and for their relatives. Mm-hmm. You can't lose hope. Uh, you remember, um, I think as a, as a Filipina that has been really honored to stand with my indigenous brothers and sisters in this work, uh, you remember um, that you have a sense of responsibility and that word responsibility, you find it in different languages and it means different things. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for Filipinos, it's like a, it's like a spiritual obligation um that you're you're tied to people, and no matter what, um, even when you're like dead tired, um, and I, I look at Gladys knowing that she's been dead tired many times walking from coast to coast in Canada <laughs> that you you keep going because of that hope and because of that sense of responsibility that we have for each other as relatives. Mm. Thank you, Sarah.
2: That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, we, Vicky's laughing, I think, having some private memories of her walk with Gladys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we did say that we would leave a little bit of time for questions and, ans- and yeah, questions from um, people tuning in. If you are tuning in and you have any questions, um, please do put them in the chat. Um, and I'm just going to take a look here. Um, okay, so we have a question, okay, is dismantling the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for our Americans, um, part of the solution given the systemic racism embedded within it? I'm gonna put that to Vicki and Gladys, Gladys is nodding.
4: Most definitely. Because, uh, first of all, like I say, when you when you think about the RCMP, you think about the Northwest Mounted Police, uh, I would suggest people go and read their mission statement in regards to uh, controlling the Indian problem. Mm-hmm. And that was done in 1863, and then they changed it to the RCMP, and uh, nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. In over a hundred years, nothing has changed, and the racist policy um, is still there. Mm-hmm. And it's all about removing the Indians from their ancestral territories. Mm-hmm. Biggest gang in the world. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and as um. Yeah. What Glas was saying, but also many of you are familiar with the defunding the police movement and even abolishing the police and the idea that um, a lot of us have a hard time conceptualizing or thinking about what a world would look like without police. But, you know, if you walk into Indigenous communities, a lot of them could actually talk to you about what it looks like not having police for the missing Americans indigenous women you know glass has collected over 4200 names of women gone missing predominantly indigenous women and so that's a total absence of police right there and that these communities galvanized with very little resource again and support from the public or the state for that matter and we're able to find ways of protecting our communities right now we have um patrols all across Canada, um, stemming back from the 1980s in Winnipeg, where, you know, youth movements and women would hold vigils and patrol the streets to make sure people are safe. So, And there's also, so there's a lot of options there in terms of um, what else can be done outside of a policing or security framework when we think about investing in communities and protecting women and men and children.
2: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Vicki. Paula, is this something that you can speak to um, in an American context? Sure. So
3: um, I, I really appreciate what Gladys said um, about um, Canada, because it's true in the United States that the history of law enforcement in the United States is is similar. It was rooted in uh, U.S. law enforcement. I'm going to use language from a California tribal report, clearing the lands of undesirables, which were the native peoples. So if you understand that that is at the foundation of U.S. law enforcement, that it wasn't to provide for protection for indigenous peoples, but rather to exterminate, um, to help in the extermination of indigenous peoples. It really, it it, it kind of makes you think twice. Now, do we, does NIWRC support defunding of the police? It's complicated because of that history. Mm-hmm. Um and what what Vicky pointed out, which is the reality in many tribal communities, is there is inadequate law enforcement, um, and the crime that was supposed to have been mitigated by U.S. law enforcement actually was exacerbated. Um, so it's again that we call understanding colonization and genocide are at the root of crime um, in for tribal communities. So. Um, That, you know, it's it's complicated. We still have some tribal law enforcement that are doing the best um, that they can do with the limited resources that they have. Um, And they would tell you that they need resources and we shouldn't defund them. And I think for that, we can support that because those are tribal um, officers. Especially those that are living that are from those communities. Um, so in those instances, uh, you know we would support them. Um, but I think it really is taking a hard look at reforming uh, the non um, non non-native law enforcement, um, as Gladys said, uh, really reforming to make sure that uh, where they weren't originally set up to protect Native peoples, that we change them so that they, they can and they do protect native peoples. Mm.
0: Thank
2: you. Um, There are not any other questions um, at the moment. I think this is actually a really great place to land for our ending, Um, but I just wanted to offer if any of you have any closing thoughts, anything else that you'd like to say that I didn't give you an opportunity to say.
1: I, I just actually had a question for you, Sarah. Like, how were your experiences in writing this book?
2: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> um, can you be, what were my experiences? I mean, just anything in general you want to share or specific, oh, but. Sure. I
2: mean, the experiences were incredible. It was just such a gift to be able to travel and to the thing that I love about oral history um, interviewing is that it kind of gives you permission to have conversations with people um, in a way that's pretty different than I think we normally speak to each other in our busy kind of modern lives. It's like you've agreed that you're going to spend this time there. You've dedicated hours to just sitting together. You've agreed before the conversation begins that it's going to be intimate and it's going to be deep and it's going to be rich. Um, and so you kind of enter into this like sacred contract um, where I think it's an emboldening space. Like in my life, I'm quite shy. Um, and I think I have a lot more balls as an oral history interviewer um, than I do in my like everyday encounters. You know, I don't give myself per- and Probably that's appropriate, you know, would not be appropriate? I don't give myself permission to ask the questions that I'm, I'm most focused on in my, you know, chit chat with moms in the park or whatever, as much as I might like to. That's probably now my preferred way of being because I'm so spoiled by having these really rich conversations with people like Gladys where there's permission, you know, to, to speak and listen deeply. Um, so the experience was just incredible, um, the interviewing and the travel. Um, I got to travel to uh, Manitoba, to um, Vancouver Island, to Terrace, um, where Gladys is, to the Dakotas twice, to Cheyenne River Indian Reservation, to Rosebud Indian Reservation, to the Southwest, to Fort Mojave, to um, Diné Nation, to Santa Clara Pueblo. I interviewed in New York City. I interviewed at Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve. So I got to see a lot of land, and I got to meet a lot of incredible, inspiring, um, brave, beautiful people. And so I feel like I had been given this great honor um, and gift to hold these stories, and and then to find a way to share them um, in the most respectful and honoring um, and full way. And helpful way possible because you know the the idea and the intent was always that they would educate, right? So um, it was.
1: It's just been a. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Thanks. Sounds you. like kind of uh, sharing and relationships. Our world should actually be striving for. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I feel so so lucky to have had the conversations and and they do become relationships, right? I mean, Gladys and I first met in. I guess it's like almost three years ago, right? And although we only were in the same physical space for one day, we then spoke on the phone many times and now we're spending these times together. And thats that's been the experience that I've had with most of the people that I've interviewed um, towards this book is that um, because of the time that you're investing in having these conversations, you form relationships. Um, and so it's an ongoing learning and an ongoing um, friendship, which is just you know an ongoing gift.
1: Yeah,
3: I think um, I just want to say thank you to Sarah and Vicky and Gladys for sharing this space um, today with with us with me. Um, I think um, stories. Um, you know, as someone who has done this work for the last, I guess, I guess, thirty years now. Um, And growing up in the movement, um, it is the stories uh, and the truths um, from survivors and their families that really um, gives me hope, but also continues to uh, push me to um, figure out how we're going to make some real change. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why I appreciate, you know, Sarah, you taking the time out of your life that you did to write how we go home mm-hmm. because it will live, you know, for a life. It will live, live for several lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And it captures the, the truths that I think we've all said has been absent um, historically and present day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Um, In 2013, when we were fighting for the reauthorization of a federal law for the Violence Against Women Act,
2: Mm -hmm.
3: we were fighting specifically for tribal enhancements in the law. Um, At the end of the day, you know, no matter how much the attorneys uh, argued with the lawmakers about what was constitutional and not, I think at the end of the day, what uh, pushed us over the edge over the finish line mm-hmm. uh, to, to our tribal enhancements were the stories of the survivors mm-hmm. um, that basically made the lawmakers do the right thing. Mm-hmm. That they could argue until they were blue in the face about mm-hmm. what was constitutional. Mm-hmm. But at the, end of the day they had to ask themselves if they could accept such violence happening to their wives, their daughters, their mothers. And if the answer was, no, they couldn't, then they had to pass the law and do what was right. Um, And that was their responsibility and their obligation as lawmakers, Mm -hmm. as politicians. Um, And that, to me, is, you know, the story of, uh, the power of storytelling.
2: So, yeah, I... I definitely agree. So much power in story. And I think that is a wonderful place for us to end this conversation. Um, thank you all so much. I love listening to you speak. Um, thank you for being a part of this event. Um, and good night to everybody else. Thanks for joining us this evening, this afternoon.
1: Thank you, everyone. Thanks. For, thanks.
0: thanks for listening. If you liked this episode.